0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Angry Robot podcast. This is actually going to be our seasonal podcast. I'm not sure how festive we're going to be able to make it. Uh, And today we're talking a little bit about historical fantasy and fantasy worlds. Um, So I'm joined by uh, two amazing writers, both of whom at various points have written for Angry Robot. I'm joined by Dan Abner and Jen Williams. Um, Dan, do you want to introduce yourself?
1: Yes, indeed. My name's uh, Dan Abnett. I have been writing for more years than is good for me. Uh, (laughs) I am a novelist uh, when I'm wearing one hat and have written quite a lot of books um, for for Angry Robot, particularly Embedded and uh, Triumph. Uh, But I also write a lot of Warhammer and Doctor Who and and anything else that they'll let me near. Uh, I also write comics uh, and I also occasionally write computer games um so i i, I just I, basically if you put something in front of me i will write it i think is the easiest way of looking at it
0: <laughs> okay amazing and uh jen do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself
2: uh yeah sure i'm jen williams uh and i feel very inadequate in the face of dan's enormous career <laughs> <laughs> um I've written two fantasy trilogies, uh, the Copper Cat trilogy, uh, the first couple of which came out with Angry Robot in the States, and uh, I've also written the Winnowing Flame trilogy, the first couple of which have won the British Fantasy Award for Best Fantasy Novel, Uh, and I'm also partly responsible for Super Relaxed Fantasy Club, which is a Mm -hmm. social group that meets in London uh once a month uh, i don't run it anymore but uh it's still going and i still occasionally turn up so people can buy me drinks um,
1: <laughs> and very,
2: um very nice
1: it is too I, I was there last uh about a year ago i think i was, I was... oh well,
2: i must have missed you
1: yeah well it was one of the uninteresting nights where somebody came in with a huge back catalog and just recited it
2: oh great that's always good <laughs> i love that yeah. um I... <laughs> So yeah, there's that, and I'm also a freelance copywriter, uh, and I work in a bookshop a couple of days a week too.
0: Amazing. Um, so I kind of just wanted to dive in a little bit with uh, the questions here. So as I said, we're going to talk a little bit about um, historical fantasy, um, but also um about your guys's writing process, um, how you pull things together. And the first thing I wanted to ask really Dan is um, you've written you know standalone novels um but a lot of the work that you're known and loved for has been with established properties so um thundercats for example <laughs> which i know jenna's a big fan of we'll talk about that in a second <laughs> oh my god <laughs> to guardians of the galaxy as a comic writer at marvel um and you do some tabletop game tie-ins as well is some, that right
1: yes yeah, Some, some. At the last <laughs> count i think it was 50 warhammer novels
0: so. oh oh just just yeah, some just then just a few yeah. o- <laughs> only 50 first on a bike
1: that was Um, the name of one of them
0: (laughs) amazing so i want to talk a little bit and ask you um what what it's like to be a writer because you're given this kind of amazing sandbox of ip to play around in um do you find it freeing um or is it restrictive being handed these tools of a world which has fairly set rules in.
1: uh I, i it can be both depending on what the universe is to be perfectly honest i uh You mentioned Thundercats. That uh, is uh, part of my misspent youth. When I first, when the beginning of my career, I started out um, as a very junior, junior, junior assistant editor at Marvel UK in London. And we, we produced a lot of licensed and franchised material like Thundercats. Transformers, Ghostbusters, Action oh Force, God. Care Bears, Mister Men—just <laughs> you name it. The Sylvanian Families was a favorite. Oh wow! Oh my God. It's like all of the things I was obsessed. All with. of the things. <laughs> <laughs> so we. So I got very. So my my first professional experience—I I think I'd wanted to be a writer from a, from an early age—but my first professional experience of, of of anything was was working for franchise prod, products and 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 sort of be giving a style guide and having to write according to their recipe. Um, and and it's an interesting to me it's very interesting the way things have changed in the last um I'm, i refuse to admit how many years it is but but i how, how things have changed because back then there was a huge stigma attached to being a tie-in writer or a franchise writer we were the lowest of the low uh it was always an embarrassment to somebody you met somebody at a convention and they said what do you do for a living and you go oh, i a writer and they go oh what have you written and you go oh, you know thundercats and then <laughs> sort of drift off and um nothing wrong but, with that and there's nothing. Well, no, I didn't think there was anything wrong with that. But, but yes, there was, there was always this, this huge pecking order between people who, who, uh, who were writers of original fiction and people who were, who were writers of franchise fiction. That was, that was the, the case. And I think um, a couple of really interesting things. And it's not to say I haven't in my career written original fiction. Obviously, Triumph is and obviously Embedded is. And quite a lot of my um, comic product in the last few years has been stuff I have created rather than written for a, a, an established universe like DC or Marvel but mm-hmm. but I think those early formative years taught me incredibly useful lessons about how to write to somebody else's recipe I consider it to be the sort of ready steady cook approach to writing when I'm given a bag of ingredients and have to make the best possible dish out of it uh, and I always enjoyed doing it because it was very much that it was g- being given a very specific target and, and doing the absolute best job so I, I sort of Probably as insulation developed a kind of very thick skin and a professional pride in the fact that I was a gun for hire. You could give me anything and I could write it, Uh, and that was sort of that was that was my sort of one in the eye to the people who were writing coming in, writing proper books. Um, So it was the sort of things went on. But I think it's very interesting over the last, certainly the last fifteen years, that that um, these beloved franchises like the marvel universe for instance or warhammer which is stealthier but still huge um have huge readerships of their own now which uh, adore the work they don't consider it to be lesser or whatever and so we actually the i think the, the sort of the sort of mainstreamization of the genre has helped enormously that that, that it's kind of equalized a little bit that that, that it is no longer such a ghettoized stigma to okay. be to be and and to be fair all the things i've written i i, I, I This is going to sound unnecessarily poetic, but I spend my career jumping from universe to universe. You know, I'm one minute I'm in Doctor Who's universe and then I'm in the Marvel universe and then DC and then Warhammer and then Star Trek or whatever it is I'm doing. And I sort of never feel terribly restrained because you not only try and write the best story you can in those circumstances, but you kind of build your own little bit of mini world building within that. The Marvel Universe, beg your pardon, the Warhammer Universe is a very good example of that. It's a, the Imperium of Mankind is huge, but I've been writing for them so much and enjoying such success with them that they actually now sort of almost semi-officially refer to part of the Warhammer Universe as the Danny-verse, because it's the bit that I invented <laughs> and my, se- my stories are <laughs> set there. So I have contributed, but I now t- take great delight in seeing the latest editions of the Warhammer rule books. Uh, coming out which incorporate vocabulary that I invented because when we started writing prose for them there wasn't a good word for an everyday object so you Uh kind of world build in retrospect into something that's established you start looking at something like Warhammer and you go well there's nothing left to invent because look they have invented everything because it's so complex and you start writing prose and you realize you do need to invent a normal sound to tell stories so sometimes you carve out that space for yourself and it's only very very rarely that I have been presented with a franchise to work on where I've gone I don't know what I can possibly add to this and and I don't really want to go anywhere near it and I think the worst example I had was in the very low ebb in the early 90s I was asked to write the Ronald McDonald Happy Meal comic. Oh, God. <laughs> Which I, th- I wow. think I, ma- I managed to do that for three issues before I simply, some part of me sort of annexed itself and tore itself out of my body and told me not to do it anymore. <laughs> but what was extraordinary about that is that when you write for for a lot of, like ThunderCats Thunder is a really good example. Back in Mar- the Marvel days, we were given a folder that was the the, the, the character Bible for ThunderCats, and it was like a page or two on each character. And I even, would kill for this document, by the way. Even, they, they exist. And <laughs> e- even major franchise. I mean, something like Batman, and who's got an 80 year career you know the DC style guide has got sort of a couple of key pages of information you need to know about Batman, who's got eighty years of continuity behind him. When I started doing the Ronald McDonald job, they sent me the style guide as if you know there had to be a style guide <laughs> to the McDonald and Ronald McDonald. I think it was something like twenty-eight pages of information about the things that Ronald would and wouldn't do. Sorry, twenty-eight pages. Yes, yes, significantly <laughs> more than Batman, and uh, and that wasn't count There was a, there was a separate sort of annex for um, um, the hamburglar and stuff like that. And I just went, wow, this is I can't. I just couldn't. So yeah. So that's the only one that's really flawed me. And you know, all due respect, I suppose, to McDonald's. I'm sorry I'm bad mouthing your stuff. But it was like one of those things where almost every time you get given one of these things, you go, This is exciting. What can I do with this? And that was the only one where I went, I have no idea what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> Did you add anything to Thundercats that Jen will know about? I'm embarrassingly, I don't know anything about Thundercats, so you guys are gonna have to. Jen, do you want to pitch it to me?
2: Uh, oh God, no. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you you must uh I assume you're aware of it is essentially yes. like cat people on a planet fight uh a monkey mummy man. That's basically it.
1: Delightful. <laughs> that be- Brilliant. That's
2: a gorgeous elevator pitch. <laughs> and there's a lot of leotards involved,
1: basically. Hell of a lot of leotards, yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was a fun thing to work on. I, I it, we we were encouraged because we were paid very low wages back in that day as as junior ed, uh, assistant editors. Uh, we were all encouraged to write, do stuff freelance like coloring or lettering, or even writing scripting. And uh, and we were all encouraged. If we wanted to be an editor, we had to have written something so that we had some experience of what it was like to construct a comic script in order to be able to edit other people. Uh, and we all ended up doing it. So I wrote Thundercats quite a lot. Actually, my my main claim to fame is not so much Thundercats. The one I, I the one that was most useful to me was Ghostbusters, which was my very first job. I was the assistant editor on Ghostbusters comic, which at the time I think was the best-selling comic in the UK. And uh, and, and I used to write stories for that, and I sort of loved Ghostbusters. But the, but I I I wrote. Um, because it was being written in the stuff, of, stuff was being written in house, and I was on staff. And they, they they decided that one page in every issue, which is I think weekly, would be a page called Spengler's Spirit Guide, which would be Egon Spengler talking about uh, some ghost or. And I think they intended it to be sort of cheaply produced in house by the assistant editor, just banging out some copy from the Osborne Book of Ghosts, you know, sort of, sort of <laughs> this week, Bauley Rectory, and that kind of thing. And uh, and I I had no truck with that, and I used to write it in my lunch times, very very quickly, and make crap up really in the most outrageous way and after a few issues it it i never had any it was not credited it was always ignore spengler spirit Spirit guide i was never credited but i think i wrote 178 of those every (laughs) week and it became the weekly thing where i would write the copy like Belisarius at the end of his credits, you know, pulling the t- thing out of the typewriter and hand it to all the <laughs> editors because they always found it really, really funny to read it. The, what, what ridiculous words I'd invented this week and stupid, stupid stuff I'd made up. And that was that was um, that was, I think, a, a strangely formative experience was contributing to that uh, sort of my proudest uh, and completely anonymous achievement.
0: Wow. Wow. Now we, know <laughs> now we know what you're responsible for it probably <laughs>
1: probably explains my symmetrical book stacking
0: <laughs> um now jen i wanted to ask you a little bit about um gaming um so the dragon age series um i believe is one of your kind of deep and abiding loves um <laughs> yeah what is it that kind of appeals to you um these kind of gaming narratives um is it the kind of sense of storytelling? Is it the sense of fun within them? What is the appeal there?
2: Uh, well, you know, I've always been uh, a gamer uh, from when I was quite small. I think my first uh, sort of console was uh, the Game Boy my dad gave me for my birthday, which I'm fairly sure fell fell off the back of a lorry at one point. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, So we've always had consoles in the house and I've always played a lot of games. And then we kind of, we upgraded to an Xbox 360, um, gosh, like 10 years ago, I suppose. Um, And I had like no idea about the sort of next generation of games because I hadn't really, you know, been doing stupid things like art college and stuff. So we were offered a game for Christmas and somebody said, just pick one, you know. And so I picked the one that had a dragon on the front because it looked cool. Yeah. Good reasoning. Yeah it was a dragon made of blood, so, you know, like, extra Ooh. cool. Um, and that was Dragon Age Origins, which ended up being, like, my <laughs> driving obsession for about three years after that. Um, and I'd never played an RPG. Uh, I'd never played, like, actual Dungeons and Dragons or any of that stuff. So it completely floored me that you could play something so complicated and so deep and complex uh, on on a screen you know and it was the first time I really encountered anything that felt like reading a book uh Mm -hmm. uh, and also being like there in the book you know that's the kind of weird place that video games sit I suppose is somewhere between watching a movie and reading a book um because you feel like you're really involved and obviously Dragon Age um and all Bioware games I suppose make a point of really getting you involved you know because You get really attached to the characters and there's dialogue choices um there's the romance option which i tend to bang on about a lot um and so you get really like sucked into it and it was the first time i'd ever played anything like that the first time i had experienced an rpg and also kind of it really took me back to traditional fantasy in a way that i hadn't you know i hadn't done that for such a long time because i felt a little bit alienated from traditional fantasy um I'm not even sure why now, but at the time, it just wasn't my thing, and I'd been writing lots of different books and trying different genres.
0: I've got to say, I
2: kind of agree with this this
0: this world building thing with with gaming. I grew up without any access to any video games at all, so I only started gaming about three years ago, and it was it was like learning a different language. I just couldn't understand what the buttons were supposed to do. It was appalling <laughs> at the first few games I did. Um, but actually the first game I ever kind of sat down and played was the Breath of the Wild on the oh, Switch, yeah. uh, which is a really, really high bar for your first ever <laughs> video game. And I've yeah. got to say a lot have been disappointments since then.
2: Yeah, that's it, isn't it? It's when you get like the one game you're completely in love with, and then you spend the next 10 years trying to find one that's exactly like it, which is, you know, why I, I have played all three Dragon Age games over and over again. Um. Because there's nothing else quite like it, you know. Although also Skyrim uh, is also great, but it, it was just it really kind of dunked me back into traditional fantasy exactly at mm-hmm. the time that I needed it to, because I'd been trying all these different genres. Uh, and then I thought, wow, it would be brilliant to write fantasy like this with dragons and dungeons and stuff, but actually make it more modern, you know, um, and update it a bit. So I think I think video games can be amazing in terms of their narrative, you know, they're uh, the stories that they can tell uh, is really interesting to me because it's, it's, it manages to do it on a different, not necessarily better, but a different level to video uh, mm-hmm. to actual novels. Uh, and that's really exciting. And I, I love, you know, I just love them. I've, we recently finished Red Dead Redemption 2, which was incredible. Um, and I've, I've never cried so much at a video game. You know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Are there any other games you've uh, drawn inspiration from in your
2: writing? Um, definitely Skyrim when I was uh, writing the second Copper Cat book uh, I was doing an awful lot of dungeon crawling in Skyrim and to this day I mean I've probably invested about 400 hours in Skyrim and still never finished the main quest <laughs> and I I own like two copies of Skyrim because they, they you know they fancied it up at one point and it got all fancy and so I bought another copy and I started again and I still just you know I get to a certain point and then it becomes really interesting to just spend my time like building a house and then putting loads of pastries in it and stuff like that um and I just you know it's like you said about world building things like Skyrim they give you a world that's so believable you genuinely can just spend your time there mm. farting about for hours yeah. and hours and hours you know <laughs> I was like oh maybe I'll learn how to make jewelry now and I, I went off and spent ages doing that you know and now I live in a house with loads of jewelry and pastries uh, <laughs> sounds delightful and the dragonborn so is never you know it's never sorted out but I'm okay with that you know
0: um I wanted to talk to you both actually a little bit about um the art of writing fantasy that has a sense of humor because I think what's so amazing about um both of you and your writing is that you can give genuine proper gut laughs when <laughs> when you're reading it and it's a really really tricky line to walk like I've read a lot of fantasy that tries to do it and fails um in my submissions inbox um (laughs) and I've read ones which are just kind of fly and it's kind of like a very specific sort of alchemy to it like Dan you write this kind of rip roaring kind of boy's own adventure with this kind of enormous amount of tongue-in-cheek for triumph um like all these black and added tinges all the way through Mm -hmm. and Jen I mean like the ninth rain just has like so many great lines like the get back on your bat and fuck off it's just (laughs) it's just like a gorgeous moment um so I I want to talk to you guys a little bit about how how you work with humor is it something that you kind of actively planned when you sat down to write or is it something that sneaks its way in because you're naturally hilarious people
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how to answer that question without incriminating myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I
2: I kind of, I didn't think about it particularly. I don't, I've never thought about it particularly because I think people are funny. Um, Generally people make jokes all the time or even are inadvertently funny, you know. And I think if you take humour away from people, they don't really work as people anymore. Uh, So I I don't know if this probably um, makes me look... bit ridiculous but I find it difficult to get through a book with no humor in it at all Mm -hmm. yeah because not not because I I desperately need you know belly laughs on every page or anything but I just feel like because people are funny I want characters to be funny sometimes as well you know because that's it makes them feel real um I don't know we all know somebody who has no sense of humor unfortunately but you know (laughs) if you've got a full cast of people then there should be the occasional funny bit, Yes, I yeah. think. Because it's just, that's how, it's also how people deal with things, you know. Um, if you, you're you writing often, especially in the Winnowing Flame trilogy, a lot of terrible shit is going down. Um, and that is how people deal with terrible things often, is yeah. making jokes and uh, or trying to lighten the situation. And also just stuff is funny. I think other than that, I you know, my my main influence as a kid, because the some of the very first fantasy books I read were Discworld novels and I didn't get at the time that they were supposed to be satire really mm. I thought that was just what fantasy was like um that it was all funny so I think that's probably the, partly that as well because in my heart you know I belong uh in you know more pork probably <laughs> <laughs>
0: So dan how how do you play with humor in your writing?
1: Well, I I think I I, I would agree to a, to a great extent with that is is that I I don't uh pe- people are funny as as Jen points out and so so uh, actually I think characters individually uh, will say funny lines in my stories no matter what the story is so uh, even in the grim darkness of the far future that is warhammer 40k uh the, the people <laughs> seem to like my novels because of the characterizations and some of those characters make the funniest remarks in the face of um, horrible things happening and i think it would be relentlessly horrible otherwise and also unrealistic so mm. so i am a great believer in sort of situational or character humor um i do know that i sort of never set out to write a joke I've never sat mm-hmm. down and thought this is going to be a funny line or this is going to be a... I mean, I write the dialogue and I suppose you, you turn, the, turn the ridiculousness button up a little bit when you're writing something like Triumph where you know that it's a broader sense of silly. Uh, and that's true in Truman, mm-hmm. comics as well. I, mean, I write a lot for 2000 AD and one of the strips I've written there for, for a good few years now is called Sinister Dexter, which is a serious strip about hitmen, but actually it's the whole idea that it's meant to be full of silly dialogue. Uh, and it actually has got a lot in common with with Triumph in that regard. And so I think it's, it's um, I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write a funny book. I, I I thought I'm going to sit down and write a book or a comic strip that is that is going to be amusing as well as entertaining. It's not just going to be adventurous. It's going to have, I'm going to be more receptive to the silly ideas for lines that I would normally get, but possibly would edit down a little bit because it's a serious book. So mm. I think it's it's a matter of just, just sort of, opening yourself up to it like I said the idea of constructing a joke I don't think I'd know how to begin mm-hmm. to do that so I would not ever call myself a comic writer a comic comedy comic writer I, I you know I'm writing books and the, and the level of humor therein is 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 sort of sort of self-adjusting and I sort of write it if it makes me laugh I think that's a good start so so it's because they're unplanned I'll have a character will say something and it'll make me snigger and I think no, that's I'm, I'm going in the good direction there and sometimes I think of I think of people I know well and think that wouldn't really make them laugh. I'll put that in. And and usually it's not so much because it's a zinger joke more. It's just a turn of phrase. It's usually about the vocabulary. The, the What they're saying is not necessarily intrinsically funny. It's the fact that the choice of words makes it really funny. And a lot of the humor that I really like, I, admittedly, love Pratchett. Um, I mean, in fact, came to Pratchett very late, but certainly Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that's mm. very influential on, on, on the way of thinking, and, and a lot of radio comedy. So I like the fact that words, either on the radio when you can't see it, or in a book where you're imagining it, you play with the words themselves. So we, hence my Absolute passion for puns, which I, you know, use all over the place. And, and, and I think it's, it's the idea of, of, of the unexpected, that you know, sort of a, a word or a rhyme not going where you're expecting it to go and being ex- deliciously funny as a result. Or just, that, like I said, the unexpected use of vocabulary, that just, just the, which is some of the great humorists, sort of essay writing humorists, were just really funny, not because they were telling jokes, but because they would just phrase something in a beautiful way and, and it would make you sort of giggle. So it is. It's 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 not a of wh- whatever skills I may or may not possess. It's not one that is in any way honed or deliberate. It's not something I you know I'm going to get out the box of funny writing today and then okay. use that because then it's just something that comes. in. I suppose I suppose it's how much I let myself do it. The, I let myself do it less writing Warhammer than I would do writing Sinister Dexter or whatever like that. It, it is a is a matter, and and so and, and also the different. Uh, I'm sure Jen. Feels this too it's the different levels of it the, the humor comes out of char- character so some some people are broadly funny and or loudly funny or rudely funny and other people are deadpan funny and that, and that kind of stuff so the, the, to me there should be a sort of range said, a range <laughs> yes a spectrum of humor within that it's not just a, something is funny or not it's, it's it's funny in what sort of way
0: Jen is there any particular um funny things that you've read recently or that you've drawn inspiration from uh um is that putting you on the spot
2: yes yeah. uh <laughs> oh god I don't know um what, what have I read recently I well I've been reading a lot of stuff for work which has not been funny at all unfortunately um, <laughs> sorry <laughs> sorry but I would, uh, what Dan was saying about um having to adjust it you know like certain levels for certain mm-hmm. uh things that you're writing uh remind me of because uh, the the last thing that I've written essentially was a crime thriller and uh the sort of the second edit that I had with that um I think with my agent uh, she was like can you you know t- tone down the jokes in some of it you know because it's uh, it's about serial killers um <laughs> and that's you know not necessarily supposed to be funny in every scene and i was like oh yeah yeah i suppose you know uh, less dick jokes in the serial killer <laughs> thriller um <laughs> so that's been a, a, an interesting uh sort of change of pace for me where you know thriller writing is is very different to writing epic fantasy it turns out um <laughs> who knew, oh, who knew? <laughs> i know what i thought it'd be easy um so that I, I had to kind of readjust my thinking of with that you know because I'm very used to writing main characters or or protagonists that I want the character I want the reader to like straight away Uh, so I often you know that they will have amusing dialogue and stuff but when you're writing a thriller the the protagonist has to most of the time has to be a bit mysterious you know so you have to approach it from a different angle really and although I, I there are still I think probably some amusing bits in it and I think Hopefully the main character is still likeable. She also has to be a bit mysterious and stuff. So uh, I had to dial it down a little bit with that one.
1: I think the dialing it down and dialing it up thing, though, is 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 part of the process. It's, it's sort of sometimes to, mm. to make something funny. It's just a matter of saying the thing that you, you wouldn't normally say. So so write, when I'm writing something that I know is meant to be, shall we put it, more lighthearted than some of the other things I write, uh, you know, with an unrelenting diet of Warhammer 40K for, for quite a long time, There will be points in the middle of one of those enormous pieces of shooty death killing space that that I am sort of tempted to you know I'm writing a sentence and I just my mind just will go to the the most ridiculous ending for that sentence like and that's like that's not appropriate to do that here because that would not be the (laughs) thing to do in this story because it will break the break the illusion of what I'm trying to create but but then again then when you switch to something where you're you want to make people smirk rather than scared or, or, or excited or whatever like that. It's almost like here's the opportunity to do things you wouldn't do. So, so for instance, Triumph, I suppose, a lot of that, that high adventure, which isn't a million miles away from some of the. The sort of um, uh, the Warhammer stuff, for instance, that I was, I was writing, it, it, it was a case of here I'm going to finish all those sentences in the silly way that I wanted to do, but couldn't do in another way. You know what I mean? It's mm. it's, it's amazing, okay. sort of just like sort of taking the uh, taking the restraints off and just going, what is the most ridiculous ending to this sentence, or what's the most stupid piece of vocabulary, or what's the daftest thing that can happen? Um, so I, I think I think dialing it back and dialing it down is is I think the humor's is always there if you if you're capable of writing it. You're capable of doing that. It's sometimes that you turn it right down, and sometimes you turn it right up, and, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. and, and that's the that's the effect you get.
0: I want to talk a little bit, um, I, Jen. The thing that you mentioned leads us on quite nicely to the next question, which is this idea of tropes and writing within uh, different genres. Because obviously, fantasy has these kind of this well worn set of things that you go back to when you start building your novel. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about this idea of kind of making it new and trying to take those tools and building them with um, a view to doing something interesting, to doing something that feels fresh to readers. Um, I think, Jen, you were talking a little bit about this kind of idea of falling back in love with fantasy when you're Mm. playing um, Dragon Age. And I think there is something true that when we sit down and we read a fantasy, a lot of us know those rules and are hoping that some of them will be upended because you don't necessarily just want to repeat reading, reading the same thing. How are the, do the rules change slightly in between um, writing crime fiction and writing fantasy? Uh,
2: well, it's, it's been interesting. It's been like a really steep learning curve, really, because I kind of, well, so when I, I started writing The Copper Promise, uh, I I did want to upend uh, fantasy tropes because I had been feeling like uh, f- fantasy felt quite blokey to me at the time, um, and I might have been that I just I read a, a string of you know especially blokey fantasy books, and it just felt like the sort of characters I wanted to read about weren't really turning up on the page. So, uh, particularly female characters in fantasy often got a bit of a um, short shrift. So essentially, if there were characters in uh female characters in fantasy books with power they were normally princesses who did their kind of political machinations and that sort of thing or you had the kind of stoic warrior who was kind of like a total badass and she probably had a tragic history and there was only ever one of them in the group you know that was it that was your smurfette character and <laughs> you didn't get any more women in the book you know um, your chitara Your Chitara, yeah, like you know, I think Chitara (laughs) is amazing. And I, in fact, I did read a fantasy book by a a guy who's really, really famous, and I got to I think page one hundred before a woman had even been mentioned, and I'd started to Mm. get to the point where I was like, "Am I reading a book where like the fantasy world thing is that there's no women?" And (laughs) I've just missed that, you know. Um, So with the Copper Cat books, I. Want, essentially wanted to write female characters that you just didn't really see a lot of. And so the main character, Widrin is uh, basically Han Solo in that she's kind of overly cocky, quite funny, um, likeable, a bit rubbish, uh, a lot of stuff, um, <laughs> and considers themselves really cool and also gets all the really good lines. You know, that was the thing I think that uh, occurred to me while I was writing The Copper Promise, is that often women don't get the funny lines in fantasy books, you know. Mm. Uh, and they're not often the leaders either so Widrin the wisecracking rogue was kind of the linchpin of that whole series and then from there it kind of moved outwards to doing things like her uh, companion Sebastian is your kind of stoic knight he's very uh, large and intimidating and and everything but he's also gay which was another sort of character that just didn't really turn up much in fantasy Um, and so then I from that I kind of branched out and did a lot of um, turning things upside down a little bit in fantasy, which was really fun, you know. And it still retains all the stuff that I really love, like taverns and mead and you know beards and shouting and swords, all that sort of great fantasy stuff. But I so uh, I wrote it so that it could include me more, you know, that so that I felt like I was along for the journey and hopefully other female readers would also feel they're along for the journey you know um the difference between writing that and writing crime I guess for me it's kind of like I suddenly have to learn a whole new load of tropes I suppose with crime thrillers uh and it does change the structure of the book a lot because in fantasy you are trying to convince the reader that the world that you're introduced them to is real so you spend a lot of time making it feel real and making the characters believable so you give them give the reader as much detail as possible and as much insight into the characters as possible but with a thriller you're basically trying not to tell them stuff you know you're trying to hide stuff from them and make it more mysterious and that even comes all the way back to the protagonist because in a in a pure thriller context the protagonist should be hiding something from the reader you know so it was, a, it was a massive learning curve, but really interesting uh, because I'd never thought of doing that with characters before. Uh, yeah, so it's been, it's been great if, you know, occasionally I've chewed my <laughs> way through my desk in horror and frustration and more editing than I ever thought was humanly possible. But um, I'm mostly out of the other side of it now. <laughs>
0: most um, and dan how how do you feel about the kind of idea of, do you mostly work within fantasy though don't you how do you work with upending some of the tropes um because triumph has a little bit of kind of post-colonial critique in it as well just a little um, bit yeah <clears throat> just <a> sprinkling <laughs>
1: uh yeah i i i think that i mean if if, if i was if i was to choose a vague genre at all to say that that's the thing i've done most of it's probably sf rather than than, mm-hmm. than fantasy but i think the thing is that that the, to me that the sort of although the the tropes are often different many of the same rules apply I, I absolutely agree with jen in as much as a lot of a lot of the heavy lifting that you do writing science fiction or fantasy is is to convince your reader that this is a real place and uh and and i i've always found that the most compelling and interesting thing is why I suppose I enjoy the world building aspect of it too much that I, I, I really enjoy the, the, the sense of, of something being authentic and when you're writing about stuff that, that literally doesn't exist uh, I, I, I find myself a lot of the stuff I read is is nonfiction, uh, sort of research inspiration research about real world ideas and, and quite often if I'm going going to write about something uh, that doesn't exist I'll find the re- closest real world analog to it and investigate that and learn how that works, and then try and transfer that knowledge across so that the thing becomes believable in the um, in the fictional world. So that so because that I, I, I just want I want people to believe it and 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 to have that that sense that I have had as a reader over the time where I'm going I'm completely convinced that I'm I'm you know wherever I am you know that sort of to make that sort of work and that can be that can be done to me that's that's in all sorts of ways so that it's it is either sometimes actually completely honoring the trope of SF or fantasy, and sometimes inverting the trope or doing the unexpected, and sometimes it's just repairing the, the landscape into a way that, that convinces me as a reader. Again, I don't write for myself, but I do write. I do use myself as a yardstick in as much as if I, if, I'm, if I believe something or I'm going along with something or I think it's a legitimate motivation for something, then I think that I'm hoping that my readers are likely to do that as well. So, for instance, going back, going back to use Warhammer as an example, Warhammer 40K couldn't be more blokey. I mean, it is the epitome of blokiness. <laughs> when I started writing for it, we would go to, I would attend games days to get, get a fit. I, a slight digression, I, I am not a gamer. You're, you're both keen gamers. I, I, Although I work in the games industry, I, I, I've never succumbed to being a gamer in as much as I would never get any work done. <laughs> but in my in my misspent youth, I was a, I was a, a role-playing gamer. That is to say, tabletop, Dungeons & Dragons, Travel and RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu and stuff like that. So when Games Workshop, for instance, approached me to work for them, I kind of knew what they were talking about because I'd read White Dwarf and I therefore I knew what tabletop gaming was. And I think actually in, in, being the referee or dungeon master for many many years as a teenager honed a lot of storytelling ability that I I I now use as a writer. But gaming in the in the sense of dice and paper was something that was uh that is very very familiar to me and very very attractive and I would go to games days which is the big Warhammer events where there'd be sort of 10,000 boys in a room <laughs> and it was sort of startling and all the characters there were sort of apart from a few sort of uh, female representations usually then it's sort of like you know the silent sisters of battle who were sort of warrior nuns that was it and I just thought I thought it's a wonderful it's an incredibly well realized universe in so many ways I mean it's, it looks like no other it's got a f- style and feel all of its own which is why I think it's so popular it's got this sort of very dark very I think very British sense of sort of melancholy corrupting decadence and decay and all that kind of stuff. They call it grimdark and everything. But but when I started writing novels, I, d- I thought I'm never going to be able to write more than a short story in this universe because it do- I don't believe it because there are sort of no women present at all and so I found ways even in the face of the grim darkness of the far future where there is only war, I found ways of putting female characters <laughs> into the story including the, the, one of my, my most successful series which is the Gaunt's Ghost series which is now 15 novels long um, three novels in became a mixed regiment like a Russian unit in World War 2 so I have female soldiers fighting alongside male soldiers and these sorts of things which, which the fan base didn't seem to go, you can't do that I, am, I, don't know, I don't know how girls work they, they, they sort of went with it and, and it, was, it was a remarkable Thing to go to games days on successive years. It's usually the NEC Birmingham or the, um uh, yeah, the NEC and the, before that the NIA at Birmingham. And and they're, they're literally, we're talking ten thousand people. It's not ten thousand people at a convention. It's ten thousand people at a Warhammer convention. So it's not like there's some Doctor Who fans mm. over there and some Star Trek fans. These are all Warhammer fans. And and the first couple of years, all boys. And then suddenly, they were like, oh my God, there are girls here. Um, and 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 they were the they were the friends and they were the sisters and they were the girlfriends and this kind of stuff and most of them although nowadays there are many girls who who who, who play Warhammer as a tabletop game which is fantastic and and some of the best painters actually some of the best miniature painters are, are are female but 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 actually a lot of them weren't very interested in the tabletop war gaming but they loved the universe they loved the yeah. universe and suddenly the fiction had given them a way to access a universe that previously there had been. Sort of unattractive. So the, the the guys were coming along to to enter the figure painting competition and play a tournament game, and their sister or girlfriend would come with them because they wanted to get their book signed. Oh, and so that's we, brilliant, isn't it? I mean, we literally a watched through the last late, yeah in the early early late nineties early noughties. We actually watched the demographic of the audience change and yeah. and at the same time expand. Um, I mean, Black Library went from being being non-existent. That's the publishing arm of Games Workshop. Went from non-existent to being, I think, it was the sixth largest SF publisher in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's got that, mm-hmm. that there's got to be some girls reading in order to get those numbers. You know <laughs> what I mean? It's always to me a case of. D- diversity and representation obviously massively 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 important but actually the best way to do it is to do it so that it, it appears to be convincingly realistic within the context of the fantasy world you're inventing rather than it, than it appears to be imposed upon it and one of the things that i, I say with with warhammer i just thought that there, there would be women here and the women would be doing quite important things uh you know and and and, and so some of the the key characters i mean the fact that i, I think i was the first character to put, uh, first writer to put a gay character into warhammer uh, and the, the the latest trilogy I'm writing for them, the, the lead is a female character. So it it and and that, and it wasn't me going, oh, I'm going to be right on and do this. It was just like that. I want to do that. That makes sense for this character to be the most important character in the story. So there mm-hmm. was, I, I think, I think t- to me that sometimes the tropes work really, really well to support what you're doing and you sort of almost, you're almost reassured to see them as part of the landscape. And sometimes you can turn them on their heads and they are just as reassuring. And it's sort of, it's sort of whatever, whatever sort of feels right at the, uh, in the in the process of writing I, I don't know that that sort of petered off into a weak answer but i, 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 think, I think the intent was good no. <laughs> started well started well didn't stick the landing
2: look well we all get points for effort for sure. okay that. good <laughs> i think that's so interesting though that you can literally see the the change that representation makes you know that's really cool
1: two things happened at the same time at the same time that we were literally able to see the change in the in the audience in terms of uh, the male female proportion at the same time i remember getting a call from a reporter at the on the times asking me to, for some quotes and pull quotes for an article they were writing because british demographic that was least likely to visit a library and use a library was teenage boys and they were doing an article because there's been suddenly this spike. It, this was about ninety eight, ninety nine. A spike in the number of, of of teenage boys using libraries, and they discovered it was because they wanted to borrow Warhammer books. They couldn't <laughs> afford to read the novels. So on the one hand, we were bringing bringing diversity and and, and, and a better gender balance to the to the, uh, to, the to the to the hobby. And at the same time, we're encouraging people to read, which is uh, I, think, I think amazing. No mean <laughs> fee, and neither of them were intentional. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: I think that's so interesting, this thing about demographics, because one of the things I find most fascinating about audiobooks, which have had this massive boom recently, is that they are actually the average reader or listener to an audiobook is not the average reader of a book. It's generally uh, a young urban man who would not normally be a book purchaser who is driving this expansion in the audio industry and just bringing new people to books. And I think that's amazing when you kind of open up these areas that you hadn't thought about before you make books much more accessible. And there are so many different ways of doing that. It's through format, it's through representation um, and it's through playing with kind of tropes as well, making making it new constantly for the new readers that are out there who may not have read about themselves before, or realise that, you know, they can consume a book in a different way.
1: Absolutely. I, I, and I think that, again, I, I'm sorry I keep citing Warhammer as an example, but because I do a lot of it, there are some really good examples of that mechanism at work. And one of the other things is that a lot of Warhammer fans, the, 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 the rise in, 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 in the readership of the novels increased when they were available on audio, because a lot of people who loved Warhammer what they really wanted to be doing was either playing the game or painting the figures, both of which were enormously (laughs) time-consuming and required you to be sitting somewhere with a lot of apparatus in front of you uh, and were not sort of necessarily um, conducive to reading a book at the same time. But actually now they could enter the universe whilst they painted they could listen to the story whilst they painted the miniatures which you know so suddenly they were they were i haven't got time to read a book therefore i won't buy it because i'd rather spend my money on these miniatures suddenly they were doing both at the same time and also it meant that they could like all the great universes star wars and marvel and whatever they could suddenly listen to a warhammer story on the bus or on the train or on their daily commute uh, allowing them to access their favorite universe at occasions mm-hmm. where they couldn't normally do it and i think those are those are sorts of things that make a. Uh, Make an enormous difference. I think. I think yeah. this, the, the access to digital comics, for instance, doing the same sort of thing, and and uh, I, I just I don't know. I, I I'm in some respects very traditional. I believe in paper comics and, and paper books. But at the same time, uh, I think the crafting of these things so that they can be used in circumstances where you might not otherwise be able to do that. I think is is expanding an, a readership and, and a, 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 or a listenership, a, a viewership, whatever you want to call it. And I, I also I think if you if you're giving in whatever whatever it is, no matter how silly it is, if you're giving people something they actually really want to read, then they will make the effort to read it. I, I have been astonished over the years of the number. And this is not just like once or twice. This has happened to me dozens and dozens of times. I've been at a signing and someone's come up to me and they've asked me to sign the copy of their Warhammer book or whatever. And I've gone there, thank you very much. And they said, I really want to thank you because uh, uh, that was the first book I'd read in 10 years or that was the first uh. book I've ever <laughs> read. And you go, what do you mean? He goes, well, And it's usually the answer is I'm dyslexic. I didn't like reading books, but I love Warhammer so much that I I forced myself to read that. And now I can read books. And that's an extraordinary uh, honor (laughs) and it's an extraordinary (laughs) sort of uh, privilege. And you're going, well, actually, you know, this might be shooty death kill in space and very, very silly. (laughs) But actually, you're wielding a kind of power and responsibility that you can. You can bring people in in a way that that is 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 going to be really really important because it's not like uh, you, you you're saying you must read Tolstoy, otherwise you're not a proper person. Do you know what I mean? It's not like mm. saying you must read. Yeah. The, if here's a good book and it's going to entertain you, so they're going to make the effort to do that. And I think that's that's a that's a very very worthwhile brilliant thing. And if that's what audio is providing, because they literally cannot read the book, but they can listen to an audio, then that's fantastic.
0: I know it's amazing. And Jen, I wanted to ask you actually in relation to this um you, cuz you work as a bookseller you said at the beginning you must yeah. have had kind of moments like this where you are introducing people to to reading or trying to find the right thing for them people who haven't managed to enjoy books before what's it like being being a bookseller as as well as an author uh
2: well um <laughs> it's it's uh it's the christmas period so i'm going to have to dial <laughs> down my general cynicism and uh grumpiness <laughs> uh but... Genuinely infects you during christmas season because you know it gets it gets very busy uh obviously Um so you know i'll try and be more um positive about it but no it's it is brilliant um one of the main things or one of the best things about being a bookseller are all the people who come and ask you for recommendations you know um and that's like its own kind of form of power because you're like right so i'm gonna you know send you off on a journey now and I get to pick what it is you know uh, and sometimes people won't go for it but you know I've uh, had people coming back in the shop because I recommended this and that to them and they wanted to tell me how much they enjoyed it and that's lovely you know that's one of the best things about being a bookseller and working with books or you know they want to come in and just tell you about it there was a there's a lady uh, a young woman who comes regularly into the shop where I work and she's working her way through. Uh, Bernard Cornwell's um, King Alfred books, which I absolutely love. Um, and every time she comes in, I think she's probably getting a bit bored of it now, but every time she comes in, I want to know what she thought about it and then how she's getting on with it. Did she, did she watch the TV series? Um, and I'm sure she thinks I'm a stalker now or something. But um, that's lovely, you know. And again, she's not, I suppose, demographically the sort of person that would normally be picked out as uh, a reader of, you know saxon no. viking chronicles and stuff and those books are um i mean i absolutely love them and they are like 80 percent battles um and shield wars and you know shouting and beards and stuff and it's, about, <laughs> it's all about you know it's all about the central character um utred son of utred is such a good brilliant kind of first person uh narrator that i think they can win anybody over really so uh yeah so i mean there's lots of lovely moments being a bookseller i tend to not tell people that i've written books while i'm at work Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah it's just it's such an awkward conversation to have basically
0: have you ever low-key sold one of your own books like
2: no I can't, I just can't, I can't bring myself to do it. It's, it's, it just feels wrong, (laughs) you know? Um, uh, Like if somebody came in and they said, oh, I'm really, I'm really after a fantasy novel where uh, the main character is a woman and uh, she swears a lot and drinks a lot. I'd be like, okay, maybe I will sell you my book, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But most of the time, I think actually fantasy readers, um, probably science fiction readers as well, already know what they want when they come into a bookshop <laughs> mm-hmm. you know I think there's like a much uh, more there's a much more fanish side to fantasy and science fiction and people know the authors uh, that they love and they know the series that they love so generally speaking those people will come in and like well I want the new Adrian Tchaikovsky or you know I want the next Robin Hobb and I don't mm-hmm. have to tell them about it you know um yeah. So generally speaking, I don't hand-sell my own books because it's <laughs> embarrassing, you know? Uh, <laughs> and, like, every now and then someone will buy it, they will pick it up off the shelf and just buy it without me saying anything at all. And I'm usually frozen in, in this horrible moment of indecision of, <laughs> like, do I tell them, you know, mm-hmm. or do I shut up? Um, and I start sweating uh, and I panic. <laughs> it's awful. But, like, I've, I've done both, so I've said, uh, oh that's my book and normally they look at you like what you mean you own this book it's <laughs> like, not for sale I don't I don't understand uh, and then you have to explain it even more um, or they just look like you are you know a frothing mad person but
0: it... I would be delighted if I was buying a book and the author was like I wrote that <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah and I to be fair most people are actually kind of um excited when you tell them like oh brilliant and then i sign it for them and it's quite it's quite nice yeah, for me it,
1: it, it is but do you <laughs> find that sometimes they just don't believe you I I, yeah. I I vividly remember one of the first book signings i ever did was in a, a bookstore on oxford street uh, and and i was sitting there in the doorway at the table that had been provided uh with a pile of my books next to me and these kids wandered in they, in their early teens and they kind of looked at me as if to say why are you what what are you doing
2: <laughs> then, i
1: wandered over in a very surly fashion and went what are you sitting there for? And I said, <laughs> and I said uh, well, um, we're th- this, I wrote this book and I'm sitting here signing copies for people if they want to buy a copy of it. And he went, no, you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I said, "No, I seriously, I wrote this book and he goes, no, you did And they just, the three of them, completely refused to believe that they could physically be in the presence of somebody who had written a book that they were also in the physical presence of. And in yeah. the end, one of them snatched up a copy and said, "Prove it. Is that you?" No, there was no photograph. There was no jacket photograph. It was. Prove it. Is that you? What's it? And it opened the book to the first page. And and by some, probably because I hadn't written many books at that point, I was able to recite the first three lines of the book from memory <laughs> without looking at it. And whilst he was looking at them, and he went, "Oh, oh, well, maybe you did then." Maybe. And, and, and <laughs> uh, but it was there. Really was there was this there was this kind of dis- disconnect as far as they were concerned. Authors must exist, but you don't meet them. And if somebody you meet somebody who's claiming to be an author, they're probably lying because that doesn't really happen. And it was a very weird experience. Taught me a lot about things.
2: I think yeah, (laughs) they definitely don't expect them to be working in bookshops either, you know. No. It's always like, no. oh, so why do you work here? And it's a well, no, of exactly.
1: They expect you to be living in the Riviera, wearing <laughs> yeah. a wearing an ascot and so yeah, yeah, a older with
0: all that sweet, sweet publishing money. Absolutely, you know? yeah.
1: Just yeah, like swimming things. around
2: like Scrooge McDuck in my yeah, or, or lying on my bed PowerPoint. of money,
1: and yeah. then just picking up the picking up the ivory handle telephone and going, "Here's a little number I tossed off in the Caribbean." <laughs> that's, that's what you expect. Yeah, oh, it's... wish it
2: was. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We all wish it We
2: all
0: wish it into existence. <laughs>
2: uh, uh, yeah. So there's always that sort of crashing back, you know, down to earth thing of they're like, Oh, so you work in a bookshop and Yeah.
0: Like, yeah.
2: And I think I think half the time they don't believe that it's a real book once you say, Oh, I wrote it. I think they probably then take it out of the shop and look at it and be like, Is this a made up? you know someone if they photocopied this together or something
0: did she put this on the shelf yeah Yeah. the bookshop didn't actually order it yeah she
1: didn't actually work at the bookshop either
0: (laughs) 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 um jen do you have any books that you're recommending a lot at the moment in the bookstore that we need to know about they can be
2: any genre okay well um so usually when people come into the bookshop (laughs) there's there's usually like uh, one or two questions it's always the same it's usually I really want a really good book I don't I, I just want a really good one I haven't read a good one no, bad
0: one. Well, yeah oh, not I a bad recommend one. the
2: bad one yeah I just want one of those good ones yeah. uh or it, I want a book for my mother-in-law I've no idea what she likes um yeah uh, so
1: you know they're both they come of, in and ask you things like have you got that book you know the red one
2: yep yeah, yeah. I literally had that like two days ago. That's
1: great. Yeah. I, I, I had a fr- I, um, I have to say the best comment I ever heard about a bookshop. A friend of mine was in a bookshop once, and was talking to the 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 the, the, the bookseller behind the counter, and while and they were in mid conversation, and a very tall, very posh woman, bur- literally burst into the shop, threw the door open, strode purposefully across the room, reached the counter, interrupted their conversation, <laughs> staring at the bookseller and goes, excuse me, can you tell me where the books on assertiveness training are?
2: <laughs> you don't need it. That, that doesn't need absolutely it.
1: absolutely true. I think that's fantastic. Wow.
2: <laughs> that's terrible because that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I, I did have uh, one time a like a reasonably famous person who was she was like a presenter on the telly and i think she used to do i can't remember her name but she did those programs where you run a hotel not very well and she comes around and says this is all shit get your act <laughs> oh,
1: do you quite, mean this is this hotel is all shit yeah. i love that show <laughs> it's
2: the best show uh and she basically sorts it out and then the hotel is not shit anymore uh and she couldn't <laughs> drive the beautiful
0: journey <laughs> yeah
2: she came sort of storming into the shop because she'd seen my book in the window, came over and pointed it to, pointed to it on the shelf and said, what is that? And I, and I said, Oh, and I'm thinking, yay. I've got, you know, she's excited about my book. And I said, uh, it's, you know, it's the bitter twins. It's by an author called Jen Williams. Uh, it's a fantasy book. And she went, Oh no, that's rubbish. And walked back out again. I like, wow. I was like, brilliant. Brilliant. That's exactly the interaction that I wanted.
1: Do, I hope you use that as a, a pull quote on the back cover.
2: Though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's the couple name. name. Um, but yeah, generally, people uh, want very vague recommendations. So the things that I always recommend are, um, if it's for uh, someone's dad, I always recommend Slow Horses by Mick Heron, which mm-hmm. yeah, is, yeah, yeah. yeah. Have you read it?
1: I have, yes. Oh, it's good, isn't it? yeah it's very good it's very, very good, very good. Yeah. yeah
2: so like really pacey gripping spy thriller yeah. uh um, if it's someone who wants a really long immersive book uh, i always recommend either donna tarts the little friend which is the one yeah. everyone else hates but i like um or uh, the amazing adventures of cavalier and clay Uh, oh um, i love
0: that book yeah
2: that is incredible so uh, i'm actually
0: currently making my boyfriend read it so um, it's literally next to me right now and it's being
1: it's it's just being made into a tv show for netflix
0: oh yes well yeah there was that news i'm really excited i hope they i hope they do it well
2: and he's the Mm -hmm. showrunner isn't he i think he is the showrunner yeah uh hopefully that will be good those are the that i I tend to recommend these enormous fat books which is often a (laughs) bit of a hard sell uh so it's that or the crimson petal and the white is the other one I tried to get. People oh I love to that
0: book. No. Yes. I love that book. So I reread it last year actually, because I just wanted that kind of I don't know, it's such a gorgeous kind of Victorian sensibility novel, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It always feels like it was written at that time the way it's been written. It's uh it's such a great book.
2: Yeah, I think I just have a weakness for that sort. I I love historical fiction anyway, but that sort of period uh i know, the other one is um jonathan strange and mr norrell as well right? yeah. Oh, so, uh, yeah so i basically only recommend massive fat books and then <laughs> uh slow horses which is nice and short so, <laughs>
0: so do they generally go for slow horses though? yeah
2: yeah like
0: that, seems like that seems like the the least commitment
2: yeah i mean i think i'm single-handedly responsible for a spike in sales of slow horses in i'm literally in about to come, buy it so yeah so it worked yeah another one yeah well
0: how about you Dan do you have any books uh you would recommend no information you're just generally recommending them and you can't recommend your own books that's not allowed oh
1: that's that's my usual
0: code my usual (laughs) tactic
1: doesn't um I I don't know I I I do tend to uh if people people want a good read I do tend to sort of go back and recommend things that I know I've loved, even if they're not sort of current or new or modern. Okay. You know, if somebody says, I don't read very much science fiction, what you can recommend, I will point them to to Dune or I'll point them to Jack Vance and the things that I grew up reading because I think they stand the test of time and that kind of thing. And there are there are certain authors that I always go back to. Um, I don't read a lot of crime fiction, but I love, I, I do really, really love Martin Cruz Smith and his Renko novels, his, uh, his Russian thrillers, the first of which was Gorky Park. And he sort of publishes one every three or four years, and I think they're they're sort of so much better written than they sort of need to be. They're the beautiful turn of phrase in them. I think the last fiction that I read that I absolutely adored, and I completely blanked on on the author's name, but it, uh, Melmoth, which came out. Um, oh,
0: the Sarah, Sarah Perry. Perry. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I really, really enjoyed that, and I thought it had a, a wonderfully atmospheric sense. But I, I do tend to, like I said, I spend a lot of my time reading nonfiction. I mean, quite all sorts of. I mean, the weirdest, most esoteric nonfiction about anything, either because I'm researching something or because. I'm trying to distract myself from my research and reading about mm-hmm. something completely different and then finding I, I've accidentally researched something else. Uh, and uh, But, but yes, and then I, I sort of reread authors who's, whose work I I love. I mean, I, I, I don't usually go for more than a year without rereading Borges, which sounds like the most pretentious thing that's ever been said on this podcast. But, <laughs> wow, I'm afraid that is true. true uh, because nobody writes a short story like him. And, actually, he's sort of, you know, science fiction author just hidden within wonderful levels of the esoteric so there's i don't know there's 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 all sorts of things sometimes you just need a sort of you need to flush your brain out again once every couple of years i will read a good old sort of john Buchan novel like the 39 steps or green mantle just because it's so far away from uh anything that i any of the mm-hmm. universes that i'm jumping from, to and from all the time so it's uh, i don't know there's uh sometimes you just want a complete antidote to the to, to the thing I- you're spending your day doing
0: i have a similar thing because i find obviously i I have to read so much for work which is a great privilege and pleasure but also if i stop reading for pleasure i start to lose any ability to judge any submission yeah
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. because
0: i've just been in work mode for so long so as soon as i stop reading for pleasure my ability to do my job goes out of the window no i
1: no no and and i think that's that's absolutely true though because i i i I mean I've always read a lot, but I've discovered that if i if I for whatever reason simply not enough time in the day, but if I don't go for more than two or three days without reading anything, be it a newspaper or a magazine or the novel whatever novel I've got on the go or whatever book I'm reading for research or something that caught my eye because it was interesting, if I go for that long, I actually can't write very well
2: mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not
1: that I, I i you know I need a constant source of things to rip off it's it is <laughs> it is more like putting petrol in a tank if I'm not putting words into my brain, words aren't coming out, and sometimes I'll go and read. the the nearest thing I can grab because I've been writing something for so long so intensely that I realise I'm repeating the same... I've got caught in a vocabulary loop and I'm saying Mm -hmm. the same words over and over again. I go and read... Hear somebody else's voice writing something uh, and I don't then immediately use that vocabulary, but it kind of stops the logjam happening. So so yes, just to function as a writer. When people say to me, I want to become a writer, what should I do? And the answer is, well, write is the obvious one. And then yes. read also is the other, you know, those are the two pieces, the yeah. best piece of advice, the only pieces of advice that you can really give to somebody because they need to be doing the thing they want to do. And the best way they can help themselves doing it is to see other people doing it.
2: Yeah. 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 I think um, I've found before as well, if I'm really enjoying a book, if I'm really loving it, I'm writing faster and better as well. Yeah. I'm not sure what yeah, the yeah. the link is there. Um, if it's just inspiration, or if it gets your brain in the right place
1: to do I it, I think it you makes your brain more agile. You makes yeah. your brain leap around if the, if it's doing that, or, or 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 it's simply it's it's a sort of that slightly euphoric. There's probably some. Um, some sort of uh, endorphin or hormonal release mm-hmm. attached to it, but it's, it's it's kind of the delight in words. Yeah, if you're reading the book that you follow the following day, you just want to kind of try and find if you can do that as well. Yeah, you know, and, it, and it kind of lifts you up, and and I think that's a that's a great asset to any writer. It it's is. just
0: a refresher for me because I, I don't write at all. I'm in awe of people that can write. I, I instead like to go in and take a hatchet to a <laughs> beautiful babies. Oh no. And then just, just kind of like stab them a few times yeah. and then like you want- mess them up. <laughs> and yeah. then present it back to you to deal with oh. and that's that's, that's great like
1: they always say you know sort of uh kill your babies don't they Is the great, key piece of advice and that now we obviously know somebody we can ring if we can't bring us to do ourselves
0: for yeah, you know, that they love murdering they love murdering them um but i find like i just lose like an eye essentially so i'll start reading kind of you've got got to be more
1: careful with the hatchet clearly
0: (laughs) yeah i start losing like reading a pile of submissions and i'm like maybe this is good and then you're like this is not good (laughs) why have i spent 20 minutes reading this yeah um but it is i think it's so important to kind of go back to that and to seek sources of inspiration and ways of doing things and ways of writing because if you're not engaged and looking at the kind of peer group of what's being created around you or what's been created in the past you it it becomes very isolating and it just starts to as you say Dan like you use the same words Mm. like you kind of get stuck on this track
1: do yeah
2: yeah, I remember. I, I remember
1: years and years ago hearing and um, and I hasten to add insert into, into this sentence not because I was a fan, but I, I heard part of an interview with uh, with Enya years ago, uh, who said <laughs> that she no judgment here. Missed, no, no, clearly not. Uh, and uh, who's, who talked about the fact that her life as a, a you know creative artist was to was to live in her mansion in in wherever it was, and and she never listened to anybody else's music. She yeah. only ever listened to her because she wanted to keep them, her own music pure. No, I've never um, to, to people like that. And I just, <laughs> yeah. thought, I, I thought uncharitably perhaps that explains a great deal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you've got to you've got to refill the well
1: haven't you in, it, in,
2: yeah. in, in order to be able to pull anything out of it basically. you
1: see that's the difference between us that's why you're a fantasy art, uh, writer primarily and that's why I'm a science fiction writer because you say refill the well and I say refill the fuel tank oh there
2: you go <laughs> <laughs> uh... so
0: on that note you two thank you so much for joining us and talking a little bit about the things that you're writing and how you write it's been amazing to speak to both of you um and listeners what we'll do is I'll I'll link information about Dan's books and Jen's books underneath so that you can hopefully seek them out in the world and read them if you haven't already um and Jen I wanted to ask you before we close up when is your Chromebook coming out
2: well it's coming out not not next year but the year after so
0: oh that's so long I
2: know it's ages 2021 that's really selfish of you yeah oh well you know that's what I'm like I'm afraid (laughs) Um, it's So it feels incredibly futuristic, but um, I'm looking forward to January when I can start saying, oh, it's coming out next year. And then it won't be yeah. so bad. Uh, <laughs> it's but not too long. As far as I know, <laughs> it's early 2021. Okay. Yeah.
0: Okay. I suppose that will have to do. Well. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. And thank um, yeah. Thank you. It's been sure. lovely to have you both on.
2: It's been brilliant. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been been great fun.